Reading from Genesis 1, 1 through 19. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is the seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs, and for seasons, and for days and years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Reading from Genesis 1, 20 to 2, 3. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth and across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, 
and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and of livestock to all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth and subdue it, to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. But on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The word of the Lord. Almighty Father, Genesis. Uh, makes the bold claim that all things were created in a deep and a mysterious way through your word. And while it's not entirely straightforward always for us to understand the fullness of what that means, we do know that it means that your word is creative and powerful and brings life into being, physical life, and also spiritual life. And so we ask that you would speak, that you would speak and teach our minds, but that you would, as you teach our minds, will you renew our souls? Will you renew all of us comprehensively? Speak into us and transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please sit down. Um, we are beginning a series, I mean, the, the two readings, I hope you recognize them, um, we're at the very beginning. Uh, we're starting a series in uh, the first many chapters of Genesis. Uh, we are uh, going to spend more than one week on this particular reading because there's uh, an enormous amount, more than, uh, than they can fit, certainly in one sermon, but even into many sermons. Um, just as a, a side note before we get going, I'm aware that for some of us, though by no means for all of us, when you come to the book of Genesis and you hear this story read, some of the questions that may come up for you have to do with the relationship between this reading and science, and, and maybe perhaps more broadly, the relationship between religion and science. Um, and if those are questions that are up for you, uh, wonderful. Um, we're not going to talk about them in this sermon, but we will talk about them. And in fact, I think it's best if we talk about them more than once. So um, I'm just going to throw this out there. It would be great if you have time after the service, and if these questions are up for you, uh, gather like right here 
about 10 minutes after the service, and I would love to have a conversation with you about some of those questions, partially because I want to hear the questions that are up for you, partially so that we can begin to unravel them, and partially so that we can begin a conversation that goes on for longer than one episode. Does that sound okay? Say, yes, pastor. Oh, very good. Well done. Um, all right. Uh, Genesis is a landmark in the history of human thought, and it's a landmark in the history of human thought for many, many reasons. Here's one of them. Genesis uh, may, uh, tells us in a re revolutionary kind of way that we live in a world full of meaning, uh, that we live in a purposeful world, that this world has a purpose and a meaning. Um, and according to Genesis, the purpose of this world is not just the kind of imaginary projection of our wishful thinking. The purpose and the meaning of this world is not something that we hoist upon this world that is not actually part of the deep structure of the world already. In fact, according to Genesis, the purpose and the meaning of this world is something that's there, uh, quite apart from whether or not you and I recognize it. In fact, it stands, even if you and I disregard it. And that is a uh, contested idea you will immediately recognize, the idea that we live in a purposeful, meaningful world. It's very common today to have people that say, absolute, that is, that is nonsense, it's wishful thinking, it's silly. Um, one philosopher, uh, uh, Jacques Monod, said this, just one example, says this, uh, man must wake up out of his millinery dream and discover his total solitude, his fundamental isolation. He must realize that he lives on the boundary of an alien world, a world that is deaf to his music and as indifferent to his hopes as it is to his suffering or to his crimes. It's very common to hear people say that the whole idea of meaning is just utter nonsense. I was, I was listening to Richard Dawkins saying, um, this, the, asking the question of why and meaning is, is, is just absolute silliness. In fact, uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it really shouldn't be allowed in the conversation. But it's interesting how in this world where that is widely, that's the wide uh, view, um, nevertheless, humanity finds ourselves uh, full of anxiety in a kind of unstable situation. Um, uh, Charles Taylor, uh, in his book, The Secular Age, talks about how one of the most uh, characteristic complaints of modern life has to do with a lack of meaning. What are we here for? And is this all there is? And it leaves us in this quandary because uh, we've been told that the world has no meaning and yet we find ourselves with this existential hole and we're kind of desperate to find something to fill it. I've mentioned before uh, Yuval Harari, he's an Israeli uh, historian, an ardent atheist, and, and he says that the whole, modern, the whole of modern life is a, is a contract or an ideal and an exchange. We, we give up on the myth of meaning, and in exchange we get power. We get lots of power. 
power previously just unable to be conceived in the history of human life. However, he points out that we've got more existential angst than any human humanity in all of history. And what we do, according to Yuval Harari, is we use our remarkable power to try, to try to smuggle meaning back into our lives. And I think he's got a point, because we could just uh, pull out our iPhones. Please don't. You could pull out your iPhone and you've got more power in that little object than uh, many human cultures could have ever imagined. And yet, we find no rest. We find no rest. And it's almost as if we're made for meaning, and if we don't have it, we go haywire. I wonder if that's a clue. Well, that brings us to Genesis, because for the last 3,000 years, Genesis has stood as a counter-testimony. For the last 3,000 years, Genesis has stood as a counter-testimony, speaking into widely diverging cultures all over the world, saying, actually, no, there is a meaning to the world that we live in, and it's a specific meaning. It's not one you make up, or I do. It's one that is given, and it's briefly this. God made the world so that he could rest within it. And he made you to find your rest in him. Jim, I don't know what you're talking about. Fantastic. Let's go to the text. And to flesh this out, I want to ask you to do some imagining with me. Um, I want you to imagine that you're an ancient Israelite. Uh, you're in the Sinai Desert. Uh, you're at the base of Mount Sinai, and it's about a year, maybe a year and a half after you have uh, set out from Egypt, and you are hearing Genesis 1 recited maybe days after its composition. So set the scene. Um, you're an Israelite. You were born into enslavement in Egypt, and about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, whatever, your whole nation was set free. Your whole nation exited Egypt through the Red Sea and found themselves in the Sinai Desert with no food except you've been fed every single day. And quite frankly, you're trying to figure out what in the world has happened. Now, it's not that you, the facts are unclear. Those you know, you once were enslaved and, and now you're free. But you're desperately curious about the meaning of it all. Because the experience of the Exodus took everything that you thought was most powerful in the world and just turned it on its head. For instance, you had previously always thought that nothing could ever defeat Pharaoh. Why? Well, good reason. Because Pharaoh, in your mind, was the embodiment of the Egyptian divinity Amun-Re. And Amun-Re uh, is the Egyptian sun deity, and in your mind, nothing is more powerful than the sun. And if Pharaoh is aligned with the sun, well, then nothing can defeat him. That's why you expected to be enslaved forever, because in your way of thinking and in your way of understanding the world, it's those with, with the most power that really win in life, and you knew that you never had any power, and therefore you expected to be enslaved forever. Except you're not. And Pharaoh was defeated. And all of that happened because of this strange, invisible God with a funny name. He calls himself I Am, whatever that means. 
And this invisible God broke in. And not only did this God uh, defy the powerless or the powerful and give dignity to the captives, set them free. But another weird thing is that this uh, God um, requires you to take a day off every week. This is very odd. Uh, every the seventh day, um, you're supposed to rest. It's called the Sabbath. And you find this very odd because you've never had a day off in your life. Uh, what are you for if you're not working? Well, anyways, one Sabbath, while you're not working, an elder uh, comes around, an elder of your tribe comes around, and he gathers a group of people together, and he begins to recite a new composition just recently composed by Moses. And as you lean forward to hear what it is that is coming from Moses, the question in your mind is who? Who is this God who's overturned everything I ever knew? And the first thing out of the elder's mouth is our verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And your brain breaks. Why? Because you've been steeped in a tea of paganism all your life. And in paganism, the universe generally exists before the divinities. I'm not going to call them gods, divinities. So in pagan myth, typically you've got, you know, you've got the sun divinity, you've got the moon divinity, maybe you've got the storm divinity, whatever else. They're personifications of very powerful forces within this environment. And very often in the stories that you've heard, it begins with a world in some kind of situation, and out of the world come forth the divinities, but the world typically comes first. But then you hear verse 1, and you realize that this is a different God entirely, because this is a God who's before it all, before the universe, outside the universe. You realize that this God cannot be identified with anything within this universe. There's a transcendence that you've never imagined before, and you realize, oh, this must be why this God won't let us depict him in art. Because this God doesn't want us to confuse him with any of the many things he has made. Pause. When we talk later about science, there's a very interesting implication of this. But I'm just going to let that fly. Then you hear verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now, in your mind, ah, now you're with, now you're tracking, that makes more sense. Because in the pagan myths you've been raised with, there's always chaos. The formless void. Chaos is uh, an environment that's hostile to life. Described with the words formless void in verse 2. And usually, in the pagan divinities, uh, in the pagan myths that you've um, been raised with, the, the, the divinities have to have a big fight, or else get up to some shenanigans. And that's how order happens. It usually is a conflict, a competition of power to overcome the chaos. Because order only comes through coercive power, right? But then you hear verse 2, and you're ready for that fight, except it never comes. 
Instead, the Spirit of God hovers with a certain serenity over the face of the deep, a little bit like a bird hovers as the bird is looking for a place to land and to nest. And right when you're ready to, to take the measure of this God's power through his fighting and his coercion, all of a sudden what you get is words. God just speaks. Verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And there's no battle. We begin to think, who is this God? The more you ask that question and listen to this story, you begin to think, well, maybe the world isn't quite as paganism always told me it was. Maybe this world is not fundamentally a contest of the will to power. It's never occurred to you before, but you begin to think maybe there's something deeper underneath the competition and the power that you've seen within the world up until this point. And you begin to consider that maybe there's a God who is profoundly free, profoundly uncoerced, a God who is absolutely at liberty to do as he wills. And then you think, maybe if this story is true, it appears that this God deploys that unprecedented liberty in extraordinary generosity. This God deploys his liberty in grace, in generous giving of life. He speaks and life flourishes. You expected coercion and what you got was creation. And as this story unfolds, something begins to happen. As the who of who God is becomes more clear, the fear that's always existed just beneath the surface of your life, it begins to dissipate. There's always been this undercurrent of fear in your life because you've always thought that competition and coercion and power were really the things that ran the world. I mean, the real world. But now you've begun to realize that you don't have to be on your guard in just the same way. That fear begins to dissipate because you begin to trust this God, this God who redeemed you from enslavement, and now, in a breathtaking way, you're discovering that this is the God who created you and created you in love. And the question, as you begin to trust who this God is, changes. The question changes from who is this God to why? Why? Why would God use his liberty to create us? Because the pagan divinities usually make humanity to be their slaves because pagan divinities are always hungry. But this God has no need. Why would he make me and us and liberate us from our enslavement? And then you get to the seventh day. I know, I'm skipping one. <laughs> Verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. And that's when you realize it. That's when you realize the meaning. The meaning of it all. What do you mean, Jim? Well, think about the concept of rest. What does rest mean? Why does God rest? I mean, it's not work-life balance. 
Okay, he's, he, he's not, he doesn't need a break. Okay, and it's very important that you see that this is the culminating moment. And you notice that this is the one day that doesn't have an end. This day is meant to go on for forever. There's no evening, there's no morning. It keeps going. Why? Well, the idea of the rest of God is probably about authority and presence. We began the service with uh, the very end of the Bible where it says the dwelling place of God will be with man. And that's what's happening here. When a king in the ancient world came into his rest, it didn't mean he took a vacation. It meant that there were no other uh, 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 challengers to his authority so that now he could begin his reign. He could uh, um, uh, live into his authority without, any, without being contested. And so when God rests on the seventh day, it means he's taking up the authority, the final and fundamental authority over the world, and he's beginning his reign. But it also is about presence. It means he's moving in. It means this world was designed to be his home. And the fact, the fact that God is resting in this creation brings up the importance of relationship. God created this world in order that he could rest in it and bring this creation and especially humanity into a vibrant relationship with him, submitting to his rule and rejoicing in his presence. And remember, you're hearing this on Sabbath. You're not allowed to work and you've been wondering, what am I for if I'm not supposed to be working today? And then it hits you. That God has called you to Sabbath to show you the deepest purpose of your life. That your life is not just to produce, nor is it just to accumulate power. It's not for that at all. It's to surrender to the authority of God, to enjoy access into his presence, and to find yourself animated by a relationship that animates all of life. God created the world so that he could rest here, and he created us so that we could find our rest in him. And that is the end for which you were made. And whether you're an ancient Israelite or a modern American, that's good news. You were made for more than you produce. You were not made merely to compete for power. You were made to be known by God and to know him back and to find your rest in him. And Emmanuel, why are we so restless? Aren't we restless? We will be restless until we find our rest in him, says St. Augustine, and he was right. And you can feel the restlessness in our modern world. Because when we give up on the idea of meaning and we uh, jettison the concept of purpose, we've got to fill that vacuum with something. And very often we end up a lot like ancient pagans. We begin to think that uh, competition and coercion and power are the name of the game and everybody's playing to win, so you better get in it. And the ancient pagans used their divinities to try to gain power. That's what magic was always for. But the whole system was driven by fear. Fear that we're going to fall into chaos at any moment. And therefore you've got to conquer down and you've got to accumulate power to hold it all at bay. 
And I wonder if you can hear something similar. Because we have enormous power, but what we don't have is any rest. And aren't we afraid? Aren't we afraid of the chaos? In every area, from politics to religion to uh, just watch the news, to, to the environment. And I'm not saying for a moment that there are real things to fear. There are. But you can see within ourselves we are very often driven by this fear. And in that fear it can lead us to desperately try to control the world in any way that we can. And now we do that on individual levels, just try to control my life, just try to get a little bit of control. But we can do that at a societal level, and in the process we become tribal, and we become competitive, and we don't know how to serve the other, and all of us are defending, and none of us are serving, and if we follow that path, it will lead us back into chaos, we'll experience life like Genesis 1 in reverse. We'll move from the order back into the formless void of the chaos that we fear. And I do not say this to scare you, but to tell you a better story. Genesis remade the world, and we needed to remake us too. Look again at the reading. Do you see the structure of grace? God begins, there's chaos in verse 2, and then God speaks. And God speaks, as God speaks, goodness and truth and beauty just explode everywhere. That's what God's word does, by the way. It calls forth goodness, truth, and beauty that wasn't there before. That's one reason we want to listen. And all of it is generous, generous grace. God doesn't need us. But he does it anyway, which means that grace and not just power are part of the structure of the universe. That grace is even older than sin. That grace is more foundational than anything else. And the same God who shows such grace in creation shows that grace in the unfolding of history. Because this is the prologue and the introduction, but it's not the end of the story. God created us in grace for himself to find a rest in him. But every one of us in different ways have opted for the chaos. And in order to rescue us from our chaos, God freely chose to enter this world in order to remake it in a way no one could have guessed. And that brings us to Jesus because Jesus is the God of Genesis shown up in person to rescue us from chaos and to bring us into his rest. He came as the world's true king, came to dwell among us, to tabernacle among us, says John. But even though he was a king, he didn't conquer through coercion. He, uh, he didn't conquer through the will to power. He conquered through weakness, and he let himself be thrown right into the depths of chaos, into the formless void of death. But his weakness was stronger even than death, and he rose victorious over the void, and he defeated chaos, everything that can really destroy us forever. And he came in order to make all things new, to make a new creation. And he says to you and to me today, in the midst of our restlessness, he says this, he says, Come unto me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you the rest that you will not find anywhere else. 
Ancient Israel heard Genesis and it made a lot of sense because they had just experienced redemption from enslavement. Today, we read Genesis from the vantage point of a greater redemption. And therefore, as we enter Genesis, we get to rediscover Jesus. And you're going to hear him call you to rest. To rest in him. So come and hear the story of the God who made you out of grace and made you for himself. And then look at Jesus and give your consent to let him find you. And then you're going to hear Jesus say, not only come and rest, but come and receive. Receive God's word. The same God who spoke reality into existence is going to speak to us through the book of Genesis. Come willing and ready to receive it. The same word that created is the word that can restore. And then as we rest and receive, we will learn to rejoice. We'll learn to rejoice in the God who has made the beauty of this world and has shown his beauty yet more remarkably in the redemption of the chaos and in the redemption of our lives. And therefore, when Genesis and Jesus Christ gets deep down within you, you're going to live in the midst of a world full of heartbreak, and yet you'll know hope. A world full of heartbreak, and yet you'll be able to point people to the beauty that can overcome it all. And we will be able to be reflectors, reflections of God's beauty in the midst of the world that he made so that people can come and find their rest in him. And we will be ambassadors of meaning. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.